Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Greatest F1 Team Hello everyone and welcome to part one of a very special seven-part series where we've asked the question, what would the lineup of the greatest ever F1 team look like? From race engineer to team principal, lead driver to chief designer and even the rarely coveted number two driver spot. We've set out to build an F1 team made up of the best there ever was. Our panel of motorsport experts from across Autosport, Motorsport.com and GP Racing have all picked individuals that throughout history that they believe are or were the greatest of all time. And in this series, we'll be discussing the careers and worthiness of the individuals that have made it to the top three for each job role. The first vacancy that we're looking to fill today is that of the race engineer. And to help me go through the CVs and the top three candidates, I'm joined by James Allen, Jonathan Noble, Stuart Codling, and James Newbold. Thanks for joining me today, gentlemen. Before we get into who has made it into the top three for this role, I want to know what are the demands of a race engineer and and, and what makes a good one? Uh, John, I think you've got a really nice definition over there. Yeah, I was doing some research today on our, our candidates, and this is one of my favourite um, books from the 90s by Gerald Donison, Grand Prix people, just full of fascinating kind of insights and anecdotes of people who worked worked in F1. And there's a nice quote from Harvey Postlethwaite, uh, you know, famed technical director who's sadly no longer with us, talking about the role of an engineer. So he says, a driver is a driver. The driver cannot tell you how to set up the car. If he tries to, then he's wrong. The driver can only report to you on what the car is doing. 
and it's up to the engineers to be able to set up the car to make it go quickly. Then he goes on to say the car has to be 90% right, and then with a driver, you can achieve the other 9% or even 10% to get it completely right. So that's a really nice insight to say that this, you know, everyone's not just about the driver and the man behind the cockpit. He needs the machinery. He, he needs that engineer to set up the car and to make it the very best it can be. Stuart, I think you've got another little anecdote that you were telling us just before we went on air. Yeah, I had the joy uh, once of interviewing Gordon Murray, the legendary uh, Brabham and McLaren designer, who who told me that basically you, you mustn't trust drivers to set up the cars themselves. They should be kept hands off at all times. And when he designed his cars, particularly the 1983 Brabham with which Nelson Piquet won the world championship, uh, it was designed to be as non adjustable as possible and that was those were gordon's words non-adjustable make just keep the drivers out of the loop they have to have their hands off because the more they're allowed to touch it the more they'll ruin it uh but i guess on the other side the more they might complain on the on the radio nowadays exactly well i don't think they like the back chat but at the same time the the race engineer's job really is to be that kind of interface between the the human and the machine isn't it so uh, they they have to sort of understand what the the driver wants out of a car and translate that into a mechanical setup rather than actually letting the driver start twiddling the dials themselves there was a really interesting insight actually from pat simmons in the most recent issue of um, Grand Prix racing that we syndicated on autosport.com recently, where he explained actually that the role of the race engineer is somewhat symbiotic with a lot of the um, other you know, critical members of the pit wall that you see. Um, but their role really is to consider four things. And he said that actually you might be surprised by the order and that that order is safety, legality, reliability, and then performance. There's a lot more to a race engineer's job than simply just talking on the radio and telling the driver when to pit and when to push, multiple facets to consider. Everyone's got their very, very clearly defined roles in a Formula One team. And as things have evolved over the years since the, the examples that um, that John and Stuart mentioned, you know, you, you've got your race engineer who's kind of the eyes and ears, um, the, the main point of contact for the driver with the team. And then there's a performance engineer who's, whose job is to sort of go away and think about how to, to make the, the car go faster. But certainly in a race situation, uh, the race engineer is feeding information to the driver. And you hear that all the time on, on the television coverage, you know, uh, the, the to and fro and the questions and the trying to second guess what, what the driver needs. It's a, it's a very important human relationship, I think, at, at the heart of a race team. And if you don't have the right chemistry, and we've seen plenty of examples where people get put together and they just don't get on with each other, then it can, it can go badly wrong. That's a really important role to, to point out, James, because um, obviously it goes without saying that you have to be super clever to, to do this role. You have to understand every um, function of the car, how it performs, when it's working well and why, and why it's not working well on the flip side. But actually you do have to have the mutual trust between the driver and the engineer. And if the driver doesn't think that the race engineer is listening to them or um, – yeah, the relationship can can go downhill very quickly. So it's not just about um, pure brains. There, there is a there is a an equilibrium that you have to reach. Yeah, the drivers are out there on their own during a race. There's obviously there's stuff they can see. They can look up at the screens as they they're passing by the big TV screens that are there for the audience in the grandstands. They can see a little bit of timing information. But as as James says, the, the race engineer is their eyes and ears, and that's sometimes why you can hear an element of tetchiness creeping in in these communications between the pit wall and and the cockpit because the 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 driver is 
perhaps panic is the wrong word, but but, but the, because the driver has this sort of limited stream of information available to them, and they're out there on their own, they they sort of need that. that that's almost a lifeline for them in terms of reading the race. You'll, you've also seen, even in recent history, there are some drivers who are better at reading the race from the cockpit from others. So you'd see people like Fernando Alonso, for instance, who had regularly if not second guess, certainly be asking difficult questions of their engineers because he had a different interpretation of what was happening to other people. Uh, and so so that's why this, this sort of line of communication is so important because the driver doesn't necessarily have all the information available to them. And you'll see with the conversations sometimes between, for instance, Lewis Hamilton and Peter Bonington, uh, Lewis will be asking questions, and particularly when strategic decisions are coming up, he, he wants to know why those things are being put to him because he obviously he only sees part of the picture so really the, the race engineer's job as well as everything else is to present the driver with that picture in as concise a possible way while the driver is is busily driving the car at the absolute limit of its performance and knowing what not to say as much as mm. what to say um it, there's an awful lot of filtering that goes on and drivers can get quite emotional even the ones that seem to have cold blood running through their veins like Kimi Raikkonen for example the Iceman you've heard him getting pretty het up on the on the radio and of course there was that all-time classic with Raikkonen with the leave me alone I know what I'm doing which is a one of the all-time great quotes of the of a driver race engineer relationship yeah, they definitely provide some great relationship bonding moments, especially, I guess, in modern F1, where we get to hear a little bit more of how those relationships act out during a race. So why don't we dive into the first of our of our top three? So in at number three on our list is Chris Dyer. So after starting his career at Arrows, obviously, he worked his way to work with Schumacher at Ferrari and race engineered both Schumacher and Raikkonen to titles. So he's now at Renault. But I guess it's that Ferrari time that really stands out in, in Dyer's career. Would you agree? Yeah, no question about that. And and obviously working with, with Schumacher together with Luca Baldessari uh, through that, you know, all-conquering period for uh, with, with the team, everything was a very, very stable, um, a bit like Mercedes has been in, in, in recent times. And he, he was uh, he did a terrific job there. Things then evolved and uh, he, he was promoted. And the unfortunate thing I think that Chris Dyer is also remembered for, of course, is the is the 2010 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Where um, there was a, they were uh, Fernando Alonso was going for the championship against the two Red Bull drivers, and they took the decision early on to to pit Alonso, um, and they were they were looking at the wrong Red Bull driver uh, on the day um, because there'd been an incident earlier on, and uh, and uh, they did just didn't see that uh, that by pitting early they were going to put themselves back out in traffic behind slower cars. So it was a strategy error, and and Dyer carried the can for that which I think is is very unfortunate. He, he left Ferrari, and as you say today, he's uh, he's found his feet again as a, as a chief uh, operations engineer at Renault. So it's great that he's, he's, he's going strong there. But I think it's easy to overlook the success of his early career at Ferrari by that mistake that was made in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Uh, was it even a mistake? Obviously, in hindsight, it was. But uh, w- w- when you're calling strategy, you, you can only sort of play what's in, in front of you. And it, it could just have been that they viewed Weber as as the greater threat and and that's why they 
pitted Fernando early to uh, to, to mirror what what Weber was doing, and and so you, you could argue that they developed target fixation. But at, at the time, that probably seemed like the the right decision. It's only afterwards, when it doesn't play out, that very often people get to carry the can, and that's really the unfortunate thing with Ferrari, isn't it? That you have the the the, the Italian media hovering over it like some Shakespearean spectre at the feast, ready to pick on anyone who's perceived to have made a blunder. You know, ultimately, he was the sporting director of Ferrari at the time. He wasn't the race engineer. When we're looking to, in this case, portion blame, um, you know, you've got to consider that actually this isn't just the work of one person. It's an entire pit wall that would come up with, um, you know, the formulations, the the simulations for, for what the race is going to look like. Um, as, as James mentioned about the traffic situation where Alonso was going to come out of the pits, he ended up coming out behind Vitaly Petrov. And that was, of course, the last race that Formula One has had before DRS. Um, of course, without DRS, he wasn't able to get past. There were multiple other successes that he was involved in, not least 2007. When when you think about it, when you look at the, the points advantage that Lewis Hamilton had going into the last couple of races, it really didn't look at all possible that Kimi Raikkonen could come away with the title that year. Um, it was really the, the strategy blunder that, that McLaren made by leaving Hamilton out for too long on, on warm intermediates at the Chinese Grand Prix that contributed to him slithering into the gravel trap and, and inexplicably retiring from <laughs> getting stuck in a, in a tiny little slither of, um, of gravel. Really, I think one of the, the key points that, that a race engineer needs is the ability to, to G up the driver and to get the, the confidence out of a driver and, you know, Kimi Raikkonen, as, as James has alluded to, is is, a, is a quite a, a confident individual at the best of times. But in in that title fight, what you really need is the is somebody on in your corner who can get the best out of of that driver. And, and Raikkonen didn't let his head drop throughout the 2007 season, and a lot of that must really be attributed to Chris Dyer. That's one of the things with engineers and strategists is that you know when things work perfectly, when you have a quick quick car and the strategy flows and you're delivering the dominant wins, you don't really appreciate the job that's being done behind the scenes. It's only when things go wrong, when things go wrong spectacularly like they did in Abu Dhabi, that suddenly people try and find a you know a person to blame or a, a story to explain the problem. Um, and I think that's what we see through all our you know, you know key characters is it's not the, the days where things went wrong that should define them. It's it's their days of success that we should look back at them. Of course, there's the, the famous 2004 French Grand Prix where um, Michael Schumacher pitted four times and, and managed to win there because it was identified that the length of the pit lane um, was, was was shorter at Manicourt than at, than at most other circuits. So, you know, where typically you wouldn't even consider doing a four-stop strategy, um, Ferrari used it that day to, to beat Fernando Alonso's Renault. Um, and of course, yeah, Chris Dyer was the race engineer for, for Michael on that day. I think we can all agree that he deserves a spot, at least within the top three. But let's have a look at who is in second place. Uh, and it's another one with heavy Ferrari links it is, of course, Giorgio Ascanelli. So uh, he started his F1 career in Maranello and worked with Gerhard Berger. Uh, but then after a move uh, to engineer Nelson Piquet at Benetton, he had a spell alongside Ayrton Senna at McLaren and then actually returned back to Ferrari. And he even ended up as technical director at Toro Rosso. Now, do we think landing a title like that is a sign of how highly regarded he was? The thing you have to remember with the Toro Rosso job is that it was Gerhard Berger who dialed him up and, and wanted to put him into that team to turn it around. So it comes back to the personal relationship that the engineers form with their drivers and the, the mutual respect that, that Berger 
brought him over to McLaren and then brought him over to Ferrari when Gerhard went back to Ferrari in the mid-90s to work with him because he felt that their relationship just worked and that um, Askinelli enabled him to get the best out of himself because Gerhard Berg is quite rare among drivers in that he's he's well aware of his own limitations and he knew the importance of surrounding himself with the right people to maximise his own potential. So it's it's no surprise that years down the line when he was the owner of what was a slightly underperforming Formula One team or a co-owner of a slightly underperforming Formula One team, he got on the phone to his old race engineer and said, can you come and sort it out? Vettel won the Inatora Rosso in the rain, wasn't it, in Monza and Ascanelli was, was technical director at the time. He was a great character, or he is a great character, Askinelli. To look at, he looked like a sort of young Pavarotti, I always thought. He was a full-figured, <laughs> he's a full-figured guy, and he had a, a good, he was a heavy, heavy smoker, and always had a very sardonic kind of grin on his face. And my strongest memory of, uh, of Giorgio Askinelli was, was at the very beginning of the 93 season, when Ayrton Senna wasn't sure whether he wanted to carry on uh, racing in Formula One uh, or not, because obviously he'd been pasted by Mansell in the active Williams the year before. Um, uh, McLaren were using a customer Ford engine. He just wasn't sure if he was going to be competitive or not. So he came back to Silverstone in the February to do a test. And basically Michael Andretti, who was racing for the team that year, and Mika Hakkinen, who was the test driver, had been pounding around Silverstone and doing sort of reasonable lap times. And Senna came back after a long break to see whether he still fancied doing this or not. And I was there, and there was only about three of us uh, from the media that were there. And I was on the pit wall about 10 yards up from Askinelli, and Senna was just going faster and faster and faster and faster. And he got down to like Hakkinen's lap time, fastest time of the weekend, like 1.19.0 or something. And it was like 1.19.0, 1.18.9, 1.18.8, And he's just going bang, 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 just going faster and faster. And I was excited. And then suddenly Askinelli just looks up to the heavens and he goes, he's back! <laughs> <laughs> you could hear it over the top of the car. But it was like, I almost had tears in my eyes. It's like, oh my God, this is Senna. He's really up for this, you know. And um, and Askinelli was just, and he just energised everybody. And of course, he had an amazing season, uh, winning race. He had no right to win in that car up against the active Williams of Prost and, and Damon Hill. But, but what a great moment that was. And that, I mean, I guess that leads very nicely into my next point, because Askinelli, unlike the others in this list, has no championships. But the Italian media have described him as the engineer of champions. And I guess in a similar way to a driver, it's really dependent on the machinery that you are given access to as to what your success is. But does that does do titles equal success? Well, if I may jump in on this, I think, you know, as a race engineer, your job at the track is to make the best of the car that you've been given. You can't fundamentally redesign a car at a, at a racetrack. You have to, as I said before, G up the driver. You have to understand where the flaws are of the car and try and minimise those as, as much as possible. Um, it, it's, it's not really like the old days where you'd have, um, you know, design engineers effectively doubling up um, being in the drawing office one week, putting together um, a front wing end plate or something, and then going and testing that at the track as the race engineer. You've got to remember that back in the day, the, the teams were a lot smaller than they are now. I mean, in, until the, the late 70s even, um, Ken Tyrrell's team still only had around about 40 people, which compared to the teams of today, you're talking about that's your, you know, almost your catering staff. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you've got massive teams. Um, that are that are at the at the track, but even more that are are remote. Um, in in you know working together with the simulator team, 
um, factory support role. So there's so much that goes into making a car. And ultimately, the race engineer that's at the track can only make the best of the culmination of, of all of those things that he's given um, by removing instability from the car, unpredictability, and just giving the driver the confidence that, that they can do it. Interestingly, on Ascanelli, of course, as well, he had a, a period in between where he was the head of competition at Maserati Corsa, um, where he was over responsible for overseeing the Maserati MC12, which in the, the 2000s was the, the all-conquering GT car of its time. Um, that's a that's a, a story for another podcast, but it shows that he had um, you know understanding and, and technical input that could translate not only to um, you know he, he obviously had a, a close affiliation with Gerhard Berger throughout his career, but other elements as well. And, and a GT car compared to a Formula One car is you know a, a, a world apart. And I think it says much about Ascanelli's you know strengths that you know it was Gerhard Berger who convinced him to go to McLaren. But Ayrton Senna knew that how close Gerhard and Aston had worked together. Gerhard talked about coming into the, the pits after a run, saying three words, and Georgia knowing exactly what was needed and how the car was performing. Ayrton saw this relationship, wanted it for himself, and suddenly when Georgia went to McLaren, Ron Dennis told him, oh, Georgia's going to be working with Ayrton. So Gerhard wasn't too happy at that point. So I think everybody is is pretty keen to hear uh, who we've placed as the best race engineer of all time. And it was going to be a name that is familiar to many because number one is, of course, Mercedes Pete Bonington, better known to many as as Bono. Uh, now, he was at Braun when it was taken over by Mercedes. So he's been with the team throughout this spell of, of dominance and obviously now famously has worked with Lewis Hamilton since he joined in 2013. And that's five world championships the pair have won together. Is he a worthy winner of the top spot for our race engineer position? Well, it's certainly a tricky question to answer because we, in our position as the media, we don't actually get to sit in on all the meetings. But you, you have to just look at that track record of success and the way that um, Lewis has, has. What well, once again, he's 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 also you know the fantastically talented driver that he is, but he's able to make the most of himself. He's able to maximise his performance and his potential because of that relationship with the engineer that enables him to get the most out of his car. And you see and you hear time and time again in those conversations with between Lewis and the pit wall that, that Bono is that vital intermediary, the, 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 the human machine interface that calms Lewis down when he's getting tetchy. He, he knows when what, what buttons to press with Lewis to make him do as he ought to do. He knows how to ensure that that Lewis stays calm and delivers his maximum while he's out on track. And presumably, obviously, we don't get to sit in in the engineering meetings, but he enables Lewis to sort of direct operations behind the scenes and, and really, really maximise the performance of Mercedes as a whole because they're a fantastically organised winning team. But you have to remember that in before all that investment, they were a team that under previous ownerships hadn't necessarily been that successful. And there's there's a lot of overlap in terms of personnel. They didn't just wake up overnight and and become winners. They they kind of grew into that role together, which is why this is a, a people story as much as a technology story. I think the thing you have to remember as well about uh, Pete Bonington is that he was fortunate, I think, that he was working with Jock Clear um, at the time when Michael Schumacher came back to race at Mercedes. And so he had exposure to 
arguably one of the very, very best. Um, and what was special, there was many things that were special about Schumacher, but even when he came back and he wasn't quite as good as, he, good as he had been in terms of pure pace and things like that, he still was Michael Schumacher. And he still was the guy who whose attention to detail and the way he works with a team to make everybody feel good, to make everybody feel knitted in together, that was a huge part in, in, in getting Mercedes up to where they, they were going to be. And, and for someone like Bonington at that point in his career, he'll have seen exactly how this should be done by the best of the best. Um, I mean, Patrick Head um, once said to me that um, there's very few people who actually understand what it takes to win in, in Formula One. And I think having that opportunity for Bono early on and then getting Hamilton, he was ready for him. They were ready for each other. They built a great relationship early on. And his part in Hamilton's success is, is absolutely not to be underestimated. So I think he is a worthy uh, winner of this um, because the results speak for themselves, you know. And we also have to remember that, you know, the era we're in now where the, the margins between success and failure are so small. Uh, it's no longer a case that the driver comes in, you say, oh, we'll put two more on the front wing and you can go out and we'll see if that cures the understeer. You're now dealing with, you know, thousands and thousands of data points you're trying to work out where the priorities need to lie. You're trying to keep on top of competition that are constantly, you know, analyzing you through GPS data. Uh, you've got the tires to think about. You're trying to manage a driver who needs careful management. So to be able to be this link in the middle of, you know, these hundreds of bits of information coming forwards, I think makes being a race engineer nowadays perhaps a bigger challenge than it's been in the past. He missed last year's Mexican Grand Prix. Um, Pete Bonington, he had a he had a personal medical operation in the UK, uh, and so for that weekend, um, he was replaced by Lewis Hamilton's performance engineer Marcus Studley, and um, of course Hamilton went on to win the Mexican Grand Prix despite um, early damage, uh, and he revealed after the race that he had been texting Bono um, during the weekend to to get some advice, which you know under, underlines the the importance of relationships as we've as we've mentioned several times in that. Um, yes, you know, Marcus Dudley stepped into the role and because he had the previous relationship with Lewis that um, actually things were able to run smoothly. But still, um, you know, having a, a second pair of eyes or ears in this case um, on the on the situation and, and referring to, to, to Bono just helped, you know, Lewis be reassured of, of the path that, that they were taking. Um, it, it goes to show really that, that you can't fundamentally operate a race team without um a race engineer you can you can swap between different people but it's that core relationship that, that and the trust and the respect between the driver and the engineer that is crucial and, and as people have said already um is, is a is a major part of lewis's success that can't be underestimated in there we've got three very worthy finalists and a very worthy winner so we have placed our first job position as race engineer, we have Pete Bonington. Uh, the first piece of the puzzle is in place as we build our F1 greatest team of all time. Join us again tomorrow where we'll be looking to find our chief designer. So for me, it's goodbye. And from our panellists, it's goodbye. And make sure you join us for this series. Thanks very much. Mm. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. However you want to make a splash this year, Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds can help every step of the way. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes crafted with premium, supernatural weather-repellent materials. The high-top uppers are moisture-wicking merino wool with puddle guard technology. And the supernatural rubber treads ensure all-weather traction, so you can jump into anything, rain or shine. Make a splash with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.